Good morning, my name is Jay Freimeyer. I'm also one of the pastors here at Providence Road. And just like Jeremy said earlier, uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, I'm so glad you're here. I'd love to meet you after the service. And so um, when I'm done here, or if you've got a few minutes before you leave, I'd love for you to come say hi, and I'd love to get to know you guys. Um, for those that haven't been around the last few weeks, we've been walking through our mission statement and our core values. And so our mission statement, uh, very plainly, I think we've got on the screens, here it is, and we said at the start of our service as well, we exist to glorify God by leading others to find freedom and joy in Jesus. Now this statement is somewhat broad and intentionally so. We're not trying to answer every single question about our church with this statement, um, but we do want uh, the city of Norman, the campus uh, at OU, our neighbors, our workplaces to feel this, that we want people to experience freedom and joy in Jesus because of us. But we're continuing to answer the questions, what makes Prov Road us? You know, what are we about? And so that is what our core values are for. We hope that the broadness of our mission statement is brought into a little more clarity as we unpack these things. In the previous three weeks, we, were, we walked through the first three. So we have gospel centrality, formative community, and everyday discipleship. If you missed those, I'd encourage you to go back and watch or listen to those. Those are posted on our website. Next week, we will conclude this series with planting healthy churches. But this morning, we will unpack missional living. What do we mean when we say that, and why is it important enough to be a core value for us? So most of you know that by, by now that I grew up in a very small rural town in western Oklahoma, and it is much different than my experience here in Norman, Oklahoma, on a number of levels. Uh, growing up, I played sports out there, and, and a lot of us in our small town, we played a lot of sports, and it wasn't because we were good, it was because there was nothing else to do. So we went out for one sport, and we went out the next sport, and they just needed warm bodies, so we kept playing more sports. And then, I mean, it kept us out of trouble. I think it was, it was a good thing. Our high school football team was always pretty decent, and that was mostly because we took it pretty seriously, but also we didn't have anything else to do. So we just did that. Um, but looking back on my time there, I, I feel incredibly fortunate to have the coaches that I had growing up. Um, it was clear that they weren't just trying to make us win games or be good so that they would get credit for winning all these games. Uh, it was clear that they were trying to make men out of us. They taught us hard work and effort and striving together uh, for a team and towards a common goal. Um, and they used catchy phrases and stories to communicate and motivate us. And one of those uh, catchphrases that they used that still sticks with me is that we were only as strong as our weakest link. And so the picture there is obviously of a chain. And if you have this long chain, but you have one link in the chain that's weak, the, the entire chain is going to break. Well, this encouraged us to work together and motivate those, those around us, right? So if someone else on our team didn't know the plays or didn't know how to line up or wasn't extra motivated, well, we motivated that person, right? Because their struggles were our struggles. If they were weak, it meant that our team was weak. But that also motivated each individual player. I did not want to be the weakest link. I wanted somebody else to be our weak link, right? Like I, I wanted to strive and be better and not be the weak link on our team. I think there's something great, there's something special about being willing to call out and identify our weaknesses. As a team, we wanted to be the best we could be. And so we had to be willing to do the hard work to find out what was weak about us. That's, that's what we did when we played another team, right? Like we watched film in advance and we found out what was the weak link on their team. 
And then relentlessly over and over, we went after that weak link to try and win. Now, if I'm being completely honest with my assessment of our church, I think missional living out of all of our core values is our weak link. Now, I want you to hear at the onset, I am not here to beat us up or tear us down any more than my coaches, my high school coaches sought to do that. We identified our weaknesses so that we could become better at them. And I think that is my goal for us this morning. The question for us in church leadership became if we didn't actually talk about this as elders or even as staff. I, I talked to Jeremy a little bit and we kind of processed whether or not this was our, our weak link. And I believe that it is. But in church leadership, we, we could sit down and we could say, is this even worth going after? Like we have some strengths as a church that we're really good at. So is it even worth pursuing something that we're, we're really weak at? And obviously you can see that, yes, we, we see that as a high enough value that we're going to continue to emphasize living on mission. Whether or not it's a strength, you may not agree with that, but if, even if it's not a strength right now, and it may never be a strength, we still see it as valuable enough and implored by, to us from God in the scriptures that we're gonna continue to harp on it, we're gonna continue to encourage it. And so that's what the rest of our morning will look like. So we're gonna start by looking through some verses that, that speak to these very things. And the first thing I want us to see this morning is that our God is a sending God. Our God is a sending God. We see this clearly in the sending of God the Son by God the Father. John 3, 16 and 17 tells us this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus, God the Son, was sent by God the Father to save the world. 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 10.40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Luke 4.16-20, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on a Sabbath day. And this is Jesus, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, can you picture this scene? The verse just before this in verse 15 says that he was teaching in their synagogues and being glorified by all. So at this point, it's no, there's no confusion on who Jesus claims to be or how people are identifying him. So they bring him up to read the scriptures on the Sabbath. And he immediately goes to Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. He reads it, he gives back the, to the scroll to the attendant and he walks back to his seat, behaving totally normal. But the narrator helps us and acknowledges that this was not totally normal. How do we know that? Because he says that all of the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. They knew what Jesus was claiming. But for those who are slow to believe, likely in the silence as they just stared at him, he says in the next verse, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
He is the one the prophet Isaiah spoke of five to 700 years prior. He's the one sent to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim good news to the poor. He was sent to save the world. But the sending does not stop with Jesus. So I want to look again at John 17. We read this beautiful prayer that Jesus prays. He's about to be captured. He's about to be beaten and put on the cross. And this is what he prays. This is verse one of John 17. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So he's been sent by the Father to glorify the Father. Now jump to verse eight. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they've come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. So he prays about the work that he's done. He's given the words of the Father to his disciples. And in so doing, they've come to know the truth that he's been sent by the Father. Now verse nine. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, and they may be one, even as we are one. So here we start to see a shift, right? Jesus, again, is about to go to the cross and be resurrected. And when he does, he will return to the Father. So he is no longer going to be on earth. So now jump to 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And here it is in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now here is the acknowledgement of the passing of the torch. Jesus is sending his disciples into the world. As the Father has sent the Son, he is sending his followers into the world. Now this strategy should not catch us off guard. He's been doing this in his earthly ministry. We see this in Matthew 10, verse 1. He called the 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. Then in verse seven, and proclaim as you go saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Luke tells us that not long after that, he sent out a whole lot more. Verse one of Luke 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he told them in verse 16, the one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So why is their rejection also a rejection of God? Because they are his ambassadors. And what's an ambassador? Second Corinthians 5 tells us, this is Paul's words. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And this is much of what the, books, the book of Acts is about, right? The gathering and the scattering of the church. The word of God is proclaimed, people believe, and then the church begins 
to multiply. Once Paul is converted, a new emphasis is placed on taking the gospel message and proclaiming it to the Gentiles. But so far in John 17, it's been about Jesus being sent and his disciples on earth being sent. So then what about us? There's one verse we haven't read, and this is so important for us to understand. Let's go back to verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Here it is. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So all of the things that Jesus has just prayed for his disciples while on earth, he is also praying for all who would believe in him in the future. So Jesus, God in the flesh, was praying to the Father 2,000 years ago, just before he would be crucified for you and for me. He was praying for us just before he went to the cross. We were on his mind. I don't believe that is an overstatement. So what was he praying? Again, let's think, let's think in terms of us, that we would remain in him, that we would be kept from the evil one, that we'd be unified, and what else? That we'd be sent into the world. We have to get this. We are the sent ones of God. We are his ambassadors. We are his missionaries. God prayed for you for these things, that we would glorify God and that we would make disciples. Matthew 28, you knew I was going there. It builds this out even more clearly in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So the command is very clear. Make disciples of all nations. Now here at Providence Road, our global mission involvement is primarily through church planning through Acts 29. And we're, I don't know how many of you know this, we're in talks with a couple churches overseas who we're hoping to form deeper relationships with where we can send teams, we can pray specifically for their churches, we can get to know them and they can get to know us. We're hoping that that begins in the spring. And so we'll be, we'll be telling you about that as, uh, as the days move along. But our global mission involvement is not to happen at the neglect of our local mission involvement here in our community. I think this is more clear in Acts 1.8. Jesus comes back to his disciples just before he ascends into heaven. And he tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he begins where they are. He, he goes to their broader territory and then the adjacent country and then to the ends of the earth. More succinctly, as a friend of mine used to say, here, near and far. We are his witnesses here, near, and far. Again, we are the sent ones of God. What a mission. So as we unpack this core value of missional living, I'm primarily talking about that here and near component. Yes, we wanna be involved overseas and what God is doing all throughout the world, but what does that mean for us here? What does that mean for your neighbors, your coworkers, your extended family, your classmates, your roommates? Are you living as an ambassador for God, appealing to those you love to be reconciled to God? So where do we begin? And you know we're gonna begin with the gospel, right? So I'm gonna call this looking upward and looking inward. So we're gonna discuss the gospel and then its effects on us first. 
what is the gospel? We share this in different ways almost every single week. And so I'm just gonna recite a song that we just sang together. I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my savior on that cursed tree. His body bound and drenched in tears, they laid him down in Joseph's tomb. The entrance sealed by heavy stone, Messiah still and all alone. Then on the third at break of dawn, the the son of heaven rose again. O trample death, where is your sting? The angels roar for Christ the King. With both our words and our actions, we are to demonstrate and declare this gospel. This is it. It is that simple. That is the mission that we have been entrusted with. And so I want to ask a very basic question. It may be insulting to you. I hope it's not. Do you know the gospel? Do you understand the gospel? Do you know Jesus? Of his love for you and the great links that he went in order to secure your redemption? Has Jesus changed your life? Or is your life pretty much everything you want with just a little bit of Christianity sprinkled on top? Because that's not how it works. When Jesus calls us to himself, Our life is grafted into his. He doesn't look more like us. We start to look more like him. So is that true for you? You can't possibly be a good ambassador for Jesus if you don't understand and also live this out. The gospel message may have been good news to you five, 10, 15 years ago. Is it good news today? Like, I hope that's not condescending. It should be good news every single day that Jesus died for you. Is that good news today? Do the hard work and ask those questions. And nothing will derail mission faster than your sin. Fight against your sin and walk by the Spirit. I thought Jeremy's sermon last week was especially helpful for us to consider what are the ways in which I am being formed? We are all being formed into something. So whether that's through the news cycle or our smartphones, or whatever that may be. You are being formed in some way. So Jeremy's message last week was basically, be aggressive and take, take ownership and control of your own formation. Be in the word of God. Engage with the community around you. Be formed into a disciple of Jesus. Are you doing that? Jesus is our greatest treasure. He is the, the pearl that's hidden, that we are selling everything for, the treasure in the field that we sell everything for. And then as you read the scriptures, do you see yourself as the lost sheep that Jesus leaves the 99 to go find? The the lost coin that the woman frantically turns over her entire house to go and find? Are you the prodigal son that squandered your inheritance and then you're walking back to the father in guilt and shame only to see him overjoyed so that he can sing and celebrate you. He's gonna sing over you. Is that how you read the scriptures? I hope if nothing else, that you would leave this morning alive again, knowing that Jesus loves you. That is our motivation to mission. He first loved us. Now, after looking upward and inward, of course, we also need to look outward. 
Here is the reality for a lot of us in our church. We are so busy. Aren't we busy? Like, I bet every one of you in here would say, I am just so busy. Like, my schedule is full. So my first suggestion to all of us, and this includes me, is to look around you at the places and the spaces you're already frequenting. I believe we first introduced this about a month ago, and you may have already been familiar with this language. But this is what we're gonna call third places. And so the first place being your home, the second place being your work. So I'm not sure who to totally give credit for, but the first place that I heard about this was Todd Ingstrom down at the Austin Stone Community Church. And a lot of our group structure here has been influenced by the Austin Stone and by Todd himself. He posted an article in 2013 describing third places as a place to introduce your lost friends to your community. And here's his motivation. Unless we intentionally make time for people outside of our community, we often won't do it. Very few of us naturally drift into mission. What does it mean to obey Jesus and be a missionary? Todd would say, obedience means gathering for the sake of people who don't know Jesus. Now, J.D. Greer, if you know J.D. Greer, he's a little bit more bold and direct on what disobedience looks like in this regard. And he says, without the mission, a church is not a church. It's just a bunch of disobedient Christians hanging out. Now, I don't disagree with that, but I'm gonna soften the blow a little bit and say, I just kind of like hanging out with y'all, right? Like, don't you, don't you like to hang out with other people who have the same values as you? Like, that think in similar ways that you do? I genuinely like hanging out with most of you, you know, right? Okay, you're still awake, good. What I don't wanna see happen is this massive pendulum swing. Like, all right, I need to be motivated for mission. I'm gonna stop hanging out with all of my Christian friends and I'm only gonna go hang out with those I know that don't know Jesus. And I think the middle ground is those third places that I referenced. This is the place we introduce our lost friends to our community. And so here you see on the slide, what makes a good third place? It's neutral in the sense that it's informal, it's casual and a place that anyone can enjoy. It's natural in the sense that it's something that both you and your friends can do with ease. It isn't forced. It's regular in the sense that it's a place that you go frequently, you go there often. So ideas of third places might be gyms, parks you take your kids to, sporting events you watch with your friends, OU games. A place of low-hanging fruit for families might be what teams are your kids playing on? Or what school activities are they involved in? Are they in dance and gymnastics or the PTA? I'm scared of the PTA, but some of you might love the PTA. Here's what I'm getting at. I didn't mean that. That may have came out wrong. Can we edit that out? Um, Here's what I'm getting at. What are the places that you're already frequenting? Where are you already going? What are the relationships that you've already built? Start there. Sociologist Ray Oldenburg has written on third places, and he puts an emphasis on these places being physical. Increasingly, third places are becoming virtual, We become more and more reliable on technology and social media for our third place interaction. I was really caught off guard recently when, um, I think it was towards the end of the summer, uh, I had not seen some of you guys for a while. And even some of you college students had caught me when you came back. And you started asking me questions about things that I didn't realize were public knowledge. And so you asked me about our trip to Colorado and you congratulated me on our 10 year anniversary and asked, us how Mex- asked me how Mexico was. And then, what, oh yeah, you, you said, sorry that you missed my birthday. And all the while I'm thinking, are you tracking me? How do you know this information? Like I, I was, in the, in the moment I was genuinely shocked. And it happened multiple times. 
And I think the older I get, the more I'm turning into Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, who just always wants to be off the grid, right? For those of you who know, like the episode where he screams into the iPad, delete all pictures of Ron, and he thinks that's actually going to delete his pictures, and he makes a vine of himself. Okay, I'm done. Um, Ron wants to be off the grid, and I think so do I. But you guys quickly reminded me, Brooke posted those pictures to Instagram, so I didn't turn you into the cops. While I wouldn't label social media um, inherently evil, I think it's a neutral place. I would say that social media and our time spent online is insufficient for building the type of relationships that we need, and not just us, that our neighbors need. It's not enough. If all of your friends are virtual friends, are they really your friends? Think about that. Like, we need more than just online friends. Contributors, contributors for the Brookings Institution uh, piggybacked off of what Oldenburg has said. The most effective third places for building real communities seem to be physical places where people can easily and routinely connect with each other. So he mentions churches, but also parks, rec centers, hairdressers, gyms, and even fast food restaurants, Chick-fil-A, right? Third places have a number of important community building attributes. Depending on their location, social classes and backgrounds can be leveled out in ways that are unfortunately rare these days, with people feeling they are treated as social equals. Informal conversation is the main activity and most important linking function. So these remarks were made five years ago, but I'd agree with him that the leveling out of social classes and backgrounds is still rare. But that doesn't mean that we as followers of Jesus shouldn't push back in that way and try to invade these spaces. Now for me, this is basketball. I've got a basketball run that I play in weekly that on the same court, I'm playing with someone who's a multimillionaire and also someone who is below the poverty line. He's living below the poverty line. But when we step on that court, Everything is leveled out. The only thing that they care about when we're on the court together is, can you get buckets? That's it. That's it. The multimillionaire and the guy below the poverty line. When we step on that court together, that's all that matters. And that's what he's saying. That social classes can be leveled out in these third places. And, and it's there that we can build real, meaningful relationships. So what if we started to see these third places less for what they can give me? So for me, basketball is like, all right, it's good exercise, it's good cardio, I'm gonna go do this and I'm out of here. What if we instead saw them as places that we actually got to build relationships with others who need the gospel of Jesus? That's all I'm implying this morning. Listen, it's hard, right? It's hard to remember that sometimes. It's hard to do that. Relationships are messy but it's worth it. I'm as guilty as as anyone. You know, a typical day is like getting the kids up early, dropping them off at school, doing the things in my place of work that are needed of me, going to getting the kids, throwing some food at them, going to soccer practice, cleaning them up, putting them in bed, and it's like, and that's a day, right? That's a day. Let us slow down, take a breath, engage those around us, listen to them, actually listen to them, like listen to the words that are coming out of their mouth and not think through the things you have to do or the next thing you're gonna say. Listen to them and that's where they form. That's where these relationships form. 
It's easy to pray and ask God to give us opportunities to share our faith. What if he already has? What if you already have those relationships? You've heard us use this gathering and scattering language quite a bit. I've already mentioned it once this morning. So uh, the gathering being what we're doing right here, us coming together as followers of Jesus, singing songs, listening to the word. I'll expand that to, to your discipleship groups and your gospel communities and a few other things we do as a church. So consider this, if I added all that time up together and then, and then threw in t- about 10 hours a day for sleeping and whatever you do at home, eating dinner, you know, whatever, there are around 92 hours left over in a week. Now, if we just wanted to make that cleaner, let's just say 12 hours a day. Most of your time is lived as a scattered church. Most of your time. So what are you doing with it? Now, of course you have work. Of course you have to take care of kids. Of course you have to attend class and and do your studies. But nearly everywhere you go, someone's with you. And you moms in the room are like, yeah, someone's always with me, right? There's usually someone with you. But your kids count though. Disciple inform your kids, your roommates, who you're in class with, wherever you go. Live on mission. I am so thrilled that our church is full of successful people. We've got professors and writers and medical professionals and teachers and moms and dads. We have grandparents. What are you striving for? How often do you slow down to pause and pray for those around you? How often do you share Jesus with others? So just a couple more quick things. Um, Practical steps that we can do starting this week. How can you live on mission this week? Now, number one, I'm gonna suggest that we practice hospitality. Practice hospitality. Increasingly, our culture feels like it's becoming more divided, less nuanced, uh, less desiring of having a conversation with someone that we disagree with. And then our culture, we find shallow community and we wonder why we're lonely. So what if we practice hospitality? What if this next week or the week after, you invited someone into your home and we got to push back darkness and tear down barriers for good gospel conversations over a meal with someone else? We get past the conversations about the weather and OU football or whatever it is for you. We get past those things and we talk about the things in life that are kind of hard. And we share a meal with someone. We maybe lower expectations of how clean our house needs to look, right? Some of us have too clean of houses. What if we got it messy if it meant bringing someone into our home to share a meal with them? (laughs) Hospitality is hard. It's sacrificial. It's something our flesh might fight against, but it's also something that's worth it. Um, I think we do this so that we demonstrate the love of Jesus that we have experienced in him. I think this is exactly what Paul meant in Romans 15, seven, when he says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Number two, this is the, this is the big one. This is the big challenge. I want you to tell someone about Jesus, share your faith with one person this week. You can do this with one person this week. Evangelism isn't some outdated method for winning believer, unbelievers to Jesus. Evangelism is the way. It is the way that strangers, aliens, and enemies of God are brought near to him. Romans 10, 13 through 17 says, for everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, as we looked at before, the sentness of Jesus to his followers doesn't only apply to those who are on our map over here, like super Christians who pack up all of their lives and move overseas. You and I are called to make disciples wherever we are. And evangelism is so important in that endeavor. Max Stiles has written a small book called, it's just called Evangelism. And it's a part of the the Nine Marks Building Healthy Churches series. And he defines evangelism as this, teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. That's really it. Are you teaching the gospel and do you aim to persuade? Now, Stiles didn't get this quote out of thin air. We just read 2 Corinthians 5.20, right? What Paul said. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, I wouldn't begin a relationship with, hey, you're wrong about life and I'm right. Let me tell you about Jesus. That's not gonna be fruitful, okay? You don't get to like say, evangelism's not working for me when you're a jerk, right? That's not gonna work. Authenticity matters. Tone matters. Genuine care and concern for others matters. Your conduct around unbelievers matters. If you're out getting drunk with everyone else, why would they want to have what you say you have? Your conduct matters. At the same time, there has to come a point in your relationship with someone else. Maybe you just own that. Maybe you just say, yeah, I'm broken and I'm sinful and I still need Jesus. But let me tell you about this hope that I have in him. Just own it. We have the best news in all the world. Now, the goal of the Christian life, I hope you've heard from this morning is not to insulate ourselves from the world around us. Jesus, when he prayed for his disciples, he didn't pray for that. He said, don't take them from the world, but keep them from the evil one. So while we're here, we have a mission. There's brokenness all around us. There's hopelessness all around us. People are trusting in things that will not give them satisfaction. It's too easy for us to respond negatively to these things, right? Maybe we get bitter towards them. Maybe we get angry or frustrated with them. Maybe we get judgmental towards them. We forget that that used to be us. Some, we may even think that God can't save this person. Well, I'm here to tell you that he can. Do you know why? Because he saved you. And you're pretty messed up. And he saved me. I'm pretty messed up. If we remember how wicked and broken we are, and that God has redeemed us, who are we to write anyone off? Who are we? The God we serve is a sending God. The Father sent the Son, and now he's sending us. We are his ambassadors. May we move towards others with intentionality and conviction, with kindness and boldness, with courage, but also winsomeness. Let us lift our heads and see that we have a hope that our neighbors long for. Offer it to them and plead with them to be reconciled to God. Let us be known as a people that are relentless on mission, 
teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Let's pray. Father, first and foremost, we thank you that you are a missionary God at heart. You sent your son, Jesus, to die for us. While we were enemies, you sent Jesus to reconcile us to yourself. So may we receive that good news this morning. May that fill us with joy and may that motivate us to mission. May we go out and tell others of this good news that we received. And I pray if there's anyone in the room this morning that has not yet received that good news and is not following you, that you would convict them and call them to yourself this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.